caught offside with Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. Oh, yes! Caught offside in the suburbs of New York City in an apartment in Brooklyn, New York. The Champions League final is set. Andrew Gunling and JJ Devaney. What's up, brother? Uh, I'm okay, Andrew. Had a bit of a rough day yesterday. The football was was uh, was good. I enjoyed it, but I was recovering from injections for uh, for injuries. I will have more injections than any player that will take the field in the Champions League final this year. I'm pretty sure. Are I'm. You, uh, are you okay? Trap nerve, Andrew. Trap nerve, and uh, there's only one way to release it. So they injected into the pudendal nerve. For those of you doing biology. Just seems like you couldn't wait to to talk about this. I'm I was so sad yesterday. It's like I was totting up all all the injuries I've had from a modest amateur career. <laughs> career is a grandiose term, but um, yeah, it was like it's not worth it, was it? If you could do it all over again, you you would have been a no some sort of was, computer engineer. Or... Absolute, absolutely worth it. Absolutely worth it and worth it to continue. Hence why I'm getting needles in my butt. Hmm. Interesting. Yes. I don't know quite what to do with that. So let's talk soccer. Uh, we have a lot to talk about. Liam Toomey of The Athletic, who covers Chelsea, he joined us once before, if that uh, name sounds familiar. I mean, it, it should sound familiar for many reasons. He's a very good and talented established journalist at The Athletic, but he joined us back shortly before Frank Lampard was fired. And to see... Um, to come full circle from Liam joining us then to joining us now with Chelsea in the Champions League final. It's like if if you just woke up from like the last few months, you would just be like, what the hell just happened here? So uh, we'll talk to him about that a little bit at the end of the podcast, JJ, on uh, some of the CONCACAF Champions League. And then I guess what you'd have to say is the, the biggest match of the season in La Liga Biggest uh, match weekend. in Europe this weekend. Yeah, Barcelona hosting Atletico Madrid. So we'll get to that. But, I mean, my God, we have to begin with Chelsea and Real Madrid. It is Chelsea who go through. They are on to the final where they will face their English counterpart, Manchester City. Um, you know, I talk about the uh, the change for Chelsea from then to now, the, the Lampard era to the Tuchel era. And to any other club, this is – this would be wild, bizarre. How did this happen? Not to them. I mean, like Mourinho to Avram Grant into a Champions League final. Mm. AVB into Roberto Di Matteo into a Champions League final and winning it over Bayern Munich. And now, once again, the same old story. Frank Lampard to Thomas Tuchel in one season and into a Champions League final. Uh, the, new, the term new manager bounce has never applied to a club more than it consistently applies to this one. Yeah, um, I think, I think what you have to look at this is the is what Chelsea did in the summer. They bought the best striking attacking talent in Europe. They spent more money than anybody else, but there was one part missing: somebody who could tie that all together. Someone who had a, a pattern of play. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking to Liam about exactly the changes Tuchel Tuchel implemented to make this come about. But a guy with a system, Andrew, and a guy that could organize the team. And that was the component. And the bounce from then really if you, is, is, is so shocking only because of where they were when Lampard was sacked. They were facing into a game against Atleti in the last 16 of the Champions League, which I, I even thought under, under Lampard they could give Atleti problems. But it, it, Atleti were certainly the favorites at that moment in time. Um, they were floundering in the league. 
And now look where they are. It's, um, it's amazing what can happen in a few months. It's also amazing what can happen when you have really good players and a really good manager with a thought-out tactical process. I don't want to downplay the job Tuchel has done, and I don't mean to prop up Frank Lampard in some way. So I hope what I'm about you to say- You absolutely do mean to No, no, that. I don't. I don't want anyone to misconstrue what I'm about to say. However, what I will say is some of this makes sense. I'm not saying Tuchel didn't come in and make dramatic changes to get Chelsea to the place that they're in now. However, take a step back for a second and let's like think this through with some of Chelsea's key components for this run. You know, um, and we can we're going to talk about Christian Pulisic a little bit more, but like him, for example, he suffered that terrible injury at the very end of last season in the FA Cup final, and it dramatically altered the start of this season for him. Uh, Kai Havertz, Chelsea's enormous signing from the summer, uh, came down with COVID, and by all accounts, it took him a while to come back from that. Not to mention a player coming into a new league at a very young age who needed to acclimate. Like, and, and that, the manager that makes sense. The manager didn't always play him either. That, right, didn't that know too. What... And, and we'll never know how much of that was Lampard. We'll never know how much of that was him coming back from, from COVID-19, like we had talked about. You know, players like Mason Mount, who now, today, and I'm sure Tuchel is, is largely responsible for a good portion of this, looks like among the best players in the Premier League with, with how he's performing right now, maybe in Europe, um, with what he's doing in the Champions League. But it makes sense that his start to the season at such a young age may not be, like he's going to continue to develop. Um, so like there are, you know, also Chelsea started the season with a different goalkeeper and had a, a couple bad results because of that. They were able to, to make that move to Edward Mendy and they've been a different club since, but Lampard did have to deal with drop points here and there uh, because of having that keeper in Riza Balaga. So there were things that were kind of like somewhat beyond Lampard's control that were always going to be going against him that uh, Tuchel Andrew, has, uh, has been able to benefit from somewhat. I think that, I, I don't think that's unfair to say. And I, I, I don't think I, that downplays the impact that Tuchel has made. I just think some of these things are just facts. There's things that have fallen for Tuchel. It's certainly the fitness of N'Golo Kante for sure. But you look at that defense and how it was organized versus how it was organized under Frank Lampard. You know, I'm, and not I'm not trying saying, to say that they would be here anyway I mean, the if only, Lampard the only was person, the manager. The only person, the only striker in Europe that can get at this defense now under bo- and did it under both managers is Callum Robinson at West Brom. You know, I, and I also think we're dancing around things a little bit here. Um, the game, like the two legs against Real Madrid, like Chelsea were just completely b- the better side to the point that you were wondering just how they let Real Madrid remain in this tie for as long as they did. Like, like the foot of Thiebaud Courtois, the prolificacy of Werner Havertz and Co. Like that was, that was all that stood between an annihilation of this Real Madrid team, even though they had a lot of the ball, they did nothing with it. Um, and yet for most of this game, only, you know, one goal really would have changed everything. It would have brought up the distance if it happened before Pulisic's intervention to find Mount. Um, that's the thing for me. Uh, <laughs> Chelsea for me should be in this position considering the outlay of players they've had and considering what they've done to remedy the previous managerial mistakes, they've really gone at this the right way and they should be where they are. Um, but I can't get away from the fact that they were so, so dominant of this Real Madrid team. Just, just the wipe only, them out. The point you make there about Chelsea, this being where they should be, God, it's, it's fascinating because their season has been so bizarre in in that sense that you almost, you know, because they've just kind of been like, it looks like now you and I believe they're going to probably 
qualify for top four and, and a Champions League place. But I they've been think so. they've been dancing around that. You know, they've been in and out. They've never really been true title contenders uh, this season. So we kind of begin to look at them in a certain light. And then when you see them here in a Champions League final, you, you, your head wants to continue down that road and think, oh, underdog. But you're right. Like, they're really not. They're really not. I mean, the no, amount I mean, of money many... that was put into the squad during the summer, the players that you see out there. I mean, you mentioned N'Golo Conte, the guy, like, what else does he have to do to prove that he is just a born winner? Like, in these moments for France, for Leicester City, for Chelsea, he is just a winner. He knows what he needs to provide to this team in these big moments to get them across the line. The only thing that holds me back from maybe going all in on what you just said, that this is where they should be. You know, I think back to before the season began when we were breaking down Chelsea. And this is before we knew that Werner was going to struggle and Havertz had COVID-19 and he was going to struggle and all that. You know, before we even knew those things, we still looked at Chelsea's back line defensively. And we still thought to ourselves, they spent all that money up front. Is Thiago Silva and Rudiger and Christensen, are, are these the guys that they want to entrust the back line to? Should they have spent some of that money boosting the back line instead? Uh, is this a, is this group strong enough to get them across the line defensively when they're facing some of the, the powerhouses of Europe? And I'll be honest, I'm I'm not. I believe Chelsea are an excellent team, but I'm a little bit surprised that they've been so good defensively. They don't but concede why, why many you, goals, but, and here they are. But I'm. Um, it goes to show what we always talk about, though, because sometimes we're in this in this argument over well is it players is it the manager is it the system is it just having good players and i think the the example of real madrid is a key one here i think for for man much of their success under zidane it's been force of will it's been the force of will of marcelo and modric and casemiro and ronaldo when he was there and benzema to be able to be such good players to will themselves out of some pretty sticky situations until they couldn't anymore which was this which we found out this season and last season, they just couldn't do it anymore. Um, for me, uh, Tuchel's, Tuchel's success at Chelsea has been a triumph of organization. It's been a triumph of getting that, that back line to function so well, getting a midfield that works and finding the right balance in attack for the signings they brought in. Um, it's proved again. It's proved again how good a coach he can be, particularly in Europe. Yeah, I don't know that his image needed rehabilitation. I mean, he he had gotten PSG to a Champions League final just last season. Um, you know, there's a reason Chelsea hired him. Obviously, he, he's of a certain pedigree. But you know, after, when you get fired mid-season by another team, there, there's some soul searching that has to go on. And I'm sure there were there were probably a few raised eyebrows among Chelsea support and media um, when that hiring was made and you're you're right like the proof is in the pudding the results are what they are and for him to have now gotten Chelsea to this point um and, and like you say it's not just that they're in a Champions League final but look at this I saw Julian Loren tweeted this yesterday JJ he said in four months at Chelsea Thomas Tuchel has now beaten Zinedine Zidane Pep Guardiola Jurgen Klopp Diego Simeone twice Jose Mourinho and Carlo Ancelotti and without conceding a single goal either in any of those seven matches uh, which is which is stunning. 
Uh, yeah, it is stunning. I'd also, like I said, I expected Lam uh, Chelsea, whatever manager they came in against Atleti, to give them a tough game because I'd seen Atleti against Salzburg and I thought Jesse Marsh, at times, his management, he ripped them apart, absolutely ripped them apart. And, 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 it, and I, I saw problems for Chelsea in that game, but it's still a huge achievement to knock Atleti out and to boss it. They cruised in that. And you'd expect them to beat Porto and they beat in Madrid running on fumes. And like I said, hoping for the old magic through Benzema or Modric. So um, I'm not saying the draw has been kind to him, but but the, the draw has been something that Tuchel could have uh, could have looked at and said, yeah, there's a final waiting for us here. And they've gone and achieved that. Yeah. Um, 24 games in charge for him. 18 clean sheets. Incredible. Again, the only, the only one to give him any problems is a foreign manager called um, Samuel Allardici. <laughs> So weird, and Callum Robinsonio. It's so. very strange. Sign it's Callum bad. Robinson, Bin <laughs> Bin Werner, get Callum in. Uh, speaking Robinson. of Werner, JJ, he does score the opening goal in this one. Probably the <laughs> and, easiest goal he'll ever score. Uh, but it doesn't, and, doesn't and, make it count any less. And again, it was a it was a Harlem Globetrotters effort by Chelsea, flicked up onto the crossbar by Havertz. And it just bounced because usually those can bounce and go over or, or end up on the top roof of the net, but it just bounced back nicely uh, for Werner. I think Theobald Courtois thought it was going to go over and hesitated slightly, but he was never getting there anyway. And there's Werner to tap at home. But there was another, they, they had a goal before that that was ruled out for offside where Werner just should never be offside in that run. He can see the two defenders. He was never onside at any point in that move. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I want to talk to Liam about that as well because I think that may be um, that may be this side's Achilles heel, heel. What's that finishing ability? Finishing, yes. Yeah, I mean, what what was it that Mason Mount said after the game? They should have had five. He's not wrong. Yeah. yeah, and if you look at the saves that Mendy still had to make, because like I said, this force of will. It's amazing how good players, even though like like I said, they were running on fumes, and they're at the. This is the this Real Madrid team is at the end. And this current team is at the end. They should never have played three at the back with Ramos coming back in. What on earth was the thought process there? Like, I, I know what the thought process, process was. If this guy's fit, he's such a, a domineering figure at the club. I have to almost give him his start. And he couldn't humiliate him and, and hook him at half time. But three at the back, it just, I mean, it worked at times. I guess Modric got deep. They had a little bit extra cover. They had numbers in midfield, but, and they kept a lot of the ball. But every time you saw Chelsea break, you were like, uh-oh, uh-oh. And 35-year-old returning um, Sergio Ramos trying to defend against even a prolific Timo Werner was a, a scary sight for Zidane. Um, but yeah, Chelsea just utterly dominant in this. Thoroughly deserved to be in the final. In fact, I recant what I said to some Chelsea fans. I, I kind of tried to spin it that it was a good result. The the uh, the result in um, in Madrid. In Madrid, yeah. I tried to say because the second half was, you know, they, Chelsea missed a lot of chances in the first half, and the second half was a non-event. I think partly because the weather just yeah. completely took over. Um, but a lot of Chelsea fans were saying this should be done here. We shouldn't have to worry about the second leg. And I was like, yeah, you know. But I think they were completely right. Because they left Real Madrid in it right to the end. Yeah, and it's interesting too because you know, with Real Madrid trailing, um, 
I guess you just kind of expected to see that onslaught at some point in the second half. It never happened. And it didn't, it just didn't come. No. In fact, it was Chelsea that took it up a notch and the onslaught was more from them as opposed to anything that Real Madrid did. I imagined uh, Florentino Perez as King Lear raging and garment rending on the heath after that result last night with like lightning in the background. Uh, very Shakespearean, Andrew. And, um, <laughs> and, I'm sure he's feeling no different today when he looks at that team or if he is looking at that team. That I mean, it's, it's probably one that needs major rebuilding in the, down the spine of the side, starting with old Sergio. How do you move that guy to the club? And then you've got to look at, well, I'd probably keep Modric. Cruz is on a contract for another two years, I think. I think um, he's still, I don't think he's a player that they would want to move. I don't know. When you I don't see, I don't see him as part of the problem. When you see how ineffective they couldn't get the like they could keep the ball, but they couldn't do anything with it last night, like nothing. So we'll have to see. But uh, I, yeah, it's it's um it's an interesting position Real Madrid find themselves in. Well, and, it's, it's uh, funny because they could still win La Liga. Yeah, which they wouldn't be my pick. In fact, they might be third for me behind Barcelona and, and Atletico. Um, Andrew, the most... what happens this weekend will have an impact on. <laughs> The most generous, I think, uh, XG map that we got was from the XG philosophy. Generous, I say, for Real Madrid. Uh, Chelsea, 3.56. Real Madrid for the entire 90, 0.49. Wow. Come on. Yeah. Uh, Especially, like I said, when you're trailing for the majority of that match and you need a goal. And you look at their chances. I'm just thinking back off the top of my head now. It was like a sharp header from uh, Benzema that was comfortably dealt with by Mendy, in fairness. Uh, and then that sharp turning shot that Mendy saved too right. from Benzema. This was, like, this was like taking a really average NBA team in the, late nine, in the early 2000s, right? And throwing in Michael Jordan. And your game plan is get it to him and see, can he do anything? Because we can't. Uh, yeah, it, it looked a little bit like that. And I was going to save this, but I, we may as well go to it right now. Um, with what you're saying, a lot of Real Madrid supporters are going to be picturing the face of Eden Hazard. <laughs> um, because for what he cost and you know, his injuries, that's one thing, but he was, he was out there last night and they desperately needed somebody to stand up and make an impact aside from Benzema. And a lot of people would have hoped that it would be him. And it certainly was not. He had one shot on target, but it was a difficult angle that was never really going to bother Mendy all that much. That was pretty much it. He didn't see much of the ball. His name wasn't really mentioned a whole lot until after, after the game, the game, (laughs) when he was, I mean, there's no other way to put it. He was celebrating almost with, with Chelsea players, some of his former teammates, and it was, it was a little jarring. Well, I he think. never played. He, one thing he never played with Mendy. True, and he was all over Mendy. Yeah. So, unless 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 he knew Mendy from his time in France, which wouldn't wouldn't stack up either. The dates don't work. So, <laughs> yeah. But so there was. We had so many. First of all. Um, we should talk about El Cherungita TV for a second. So El Cherungito is, it's become the go-to Spanish TV late night chat show. 
Uh, it's got some great comedians that come on. You may have heard of uh, Florentino Perez. He's been on it twice in the last few weeks. I'm not familiar with his work. He's very good. He's a kind of an obscurist comedian. Like a carrot you know, top kind of prop comic sort of thing. Uh, well, yeah, but the, the prop is that uh, that the, the elite of Europe are, are completely poverized and have no money. Um, and you would probably if you were if you were critiquing such a such a comedy styling, you would probably throw the name of Eden Hazard at him. You did sign him, you know, for one hundred and twenty nine million or whatever it was. Yeah, but anyway, yeah. so El Charanguita is hosted by Joseph Pederol and. Um, so Joseph had seen the scenes of Eden Hazard being a little bit too joyous post-match. And it was one of the most stunning pieces of TV I've ever seen. So the, the, the picture of a laughing, celebrating, uh, jubilant Hazard is in the background. There's darkness in the studio. And then Pedrol is there, hair slicked back, uh, like a real, real villain, uh, rubbing his hands as if he's ready to, to cut into a, a juicy, juicy, fat turkey. Uh, the turkey, in this case, Eden Hazard. I'm going to give you a few quotes that were uh, translated by the experts. You, you should people. mention, too, the tone of the music. Oh, the music was like, like death scene in a... Death scene in a telenovela, maybe, maybe stronger than that. Death scene in a, in a 1980s cop movie. Something like that. Real dark. Uh, they got the lighting perfect. So <laughs> these are the, the translated quotes uh, by Roberto Rojas on Twitter. Thank him for doing God's work. So he, uh, Joseph Pederol begins, El Real Madrid eliminated and Hazard laughing. Hazard, two years pulling Real Madrid's leg. Two years. Gained weight. Say nothing. I was just reading, and a lot of you said, another bail, another bail. But that's how football is, to be in there. Madrid waiting three years for you. Madrid paid 100 million euros for him. They just eliminated you, and it's possible to find something that is funny. After Zidane gave you the opportunity that you don't deserve to play from the start, that you don't deserve it, you laugh at everyone. A lot of analyze, a lot to talk about Zidane. If Ramos was ready to play or not. If Real Madrid have more options to make changes to the team. Something that Florentino, that change is planned there. Even more with the arrival of Kylian Mbappe. This is his uh, prediction. Mm -hmm. What else is left? Even with the arrival of Alaba. You have to make a lot of changes on this team. But from Hazard is very serious. Hazard, get rid of the badges. He's referring to the Chelsea and Real Madrid ones in the background on the screen. Hazard. Hazard cannot continue for another second at Real Madrid. Dun dun. Now, to get to the, the crux of it, like how over the top did you feel that analysis was? Um, from your American brain, because a lot of people wanted, who, you know, a lot of our listeners are American and, and they contacted us and said, is this not really like over the top? I'm trying to get my American brain around it because you do see, you often see rancor and, and upset. Uh, usually when Richard Sherman's involved. But after games, you see a lot of backslapping, a lot of hugging, a lot of, lot of swapping jerseys. If you used to play on the STEM college team, you've gone, ba you've gone to, ba to battle against each other for an hour, but you're, you know, knock the absolute crap out of each other, but you're still swapping jerseys, et cetera, et cetera. You see a lot of that in, in U.S. sport. Um, you sure do. Um, I thought this was over the top. 
I thought it was over the top what he did. There's a way to be what Hazard did, not what Joseph Pedrol did. So. What Hazard did, uh, and also what Pedrol did. I mean, let's be honest, <laughs> both things can be true. Um, but I, I thought when I saw the clip of Hazard, I thought, oh, oh no! Like if oh. if I were like the only I remember the Eagles uh, lost an NFC Championship game to the Arizona Cardinals. Right. Uh, and Carell Buckhalter, the Eagles backup running back, he after the game was like kind of buddy buddy laughing with somebody on the Cardinals. And I remember then being like, what are you laughing at? Like, I need you to be as angry as I am right now. Um, and so I get that, like, I get the that guys have friends on other teams and, and there's a way to do it. But I think being that buddy buddy and like with the cameras right there, um, I think that there is a certain level of maybe tone deafness that, that comes with that obliviousness. Like, even if yeah. you don't, let's say for a second, he doesn't care that like deep down inside Real Madrid lost, I'm collecting my money. I'm good. I'm happy for my friends. Like, even if that is truly how he felt, um, I'm sorry. You, you can't show it that way. You can't be so outwardly happy and jubilant. So if I were a Real Madrid supporter, if I was from Madrid watching that, um, that guy, he'd ha- he'd, he would permanently be on my S list. I would not like him anymore. He might stay at the club. He might score goals. I'll cheer those goals. But he, I don't know if he could ever be one of my favorite players on the team again. I maybe, is that, is that um, too harsh? No, I, I didn't like it. Honestly, I didn't like it. And I wonder, was it a, or is it a, a function of the sterilized nature of football right now. I'm not saying he forgot about the cameras. How can you forget about the cameras? This game has been beamed to a hundred and something countries worldwide to hundreds of millions of people. Mostly the ones you need to be concerned about are the ones in Madrid who will be greeting you at the plane when you get back. But I'm wondering if the sterile nature, the fact like, is he doing that in front of a full stadium with traveling Real Madrid supporters? I don't know. Is he doing that? I You're don't right. think it's a good question. I, don't, I don't think he's doing that because You'd hear it straight away. He would be, they, they go mental, absolutely crazy. Um, so I wonder if this is a, a byproduct of like, because I have seen a little bit more um, conviviality. Okay. A bit I, I'd more. have been fine if he walked up to some guys smiling, high-fiving, like shaking their hands out. Like there's nothing weird about that. I just thought what he did last night, like he almost looked, he was like excited. He was I don't know. It was too jubilant. It just was too, whatever the line is of jubilance when your team loses, he crossed to me, he crossed it. He was buzzing. Yeah, he was. You can't be buzzing for your old team like that. Not, not uh, publicly. Just uh, can't I, do it. I saw and an also, ESPN FC, JJ, Alejandro Moreno afterwards. He called a tone deaf, ignorant, said there's no coming back for him. He'll never be forgiven. You know, so it's not just uh, Chiringuita or whatever, or the show in, uh, in Madrid. I, I think a lot of people saw that and thought, Oh, Come on, bad look. Who was it swapped the jersey? Was it Paul Pogba swapped the jersey against Chelsea or someone at halftime? Gave someone else their jersey at halftime going down the tunnel a few years back. Oh, yes. Uh, good old Hawksport have an article. Most controversial shirt swapping moments after Eden Hazard and Di Maria's halftime shirt switch. <laughs> oh, this is from March 2016. What are you doing? Oh, incredible. There was no love lost between Eden Hazard and the Stamper Bridge faithful on Wednesday night. Chelsea were knocked out of the Champions League, losing 2-1 on the night before 2 and aggregate to Paris Saint-Germain in the last 16. One incident that really angered the club supporters had little to do with the final result, however. Hazard, who has been a shadow 
of the player who lifted various individual honours in a stunning campaign last season, committed the ultimate cardinal sin. The Belgium international swapped shirts with PSG winger Angel Di Maria at halftime, described by furious supporters as an act of betrayal. Isn't that so interesting? I've just clicked into an article from March 2016, and it was one of uh, Hazard's off years. You know, Hazard always seemed to have those years at Chelsea yeah, where he was like an every other year player. He'd go, you know, he'd seesaw from best in the league to like, what, what's up with this guy? Take, take him a year off, baby. <laughs> uh, maybe it's just his, like in his personality, there's something when he's having these down moments. He doesn't, he doesn't want people to see that. I so actually, he puts on a different front. I, I'm not going to, I don't do know. Do you like him when he's interviewed? I think he's really natural. He seems yeah. happy. I enjoy, and I enjoy when he's good. I, I absolutely love him uh, as a player. Ah, uh, look, at he's brilliant when he's good. I'm not on about that, but I'm just saying his general demeanor seems to be a happy go lucky guy. And he let it go too far the other night. I think that's, I think, I don't think he can do that. Yeah. So if you're a Real Madrid fan and you're angry at him, well, you're not sure if you, you're not sure if you should feel that way. I say, you're, you're, no, you're, you're fine. You're fine to feel that way. I'd be mad too. Yeah. Um, JJ, in terms of the, uh, the final, it's an all English affair for the third time. Liverpool, uh, Liverpool, Tottenham, Chelsea, Man United, and now Chelsea, Man City. Uh, William Hill Sportsbook um, has Manchester City, not surprisingly, as the favorites, minus 225. Chelsea's odds stand at plus 163. Uh, 538, uh, their SPI also gives Manchester City a 64% chance of winning this one, which all of that sounds, sounds about right to me, I would say. Yep. I think so. Um, Champions League final that was uh, always talked about when we when 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 money first came into English English football. Uh, I say when money came in, that's not true. When big money, like billionaire money, like league changing money, came in with Roman Abramovich, mm-hmm. uh, the talk was always about Chelsea getting to lots of Champions League finals now and dominating uh, football, and that happened to a degree and not to a degree. They certainly put themselves in it in a preeminent position in English football that they hadn't held uh, hitherto. And, um, and now we see it with Man City. The same thing was said 10 years ago. This is the, the, natural, the natural end to the, to the City project. And it's going to be distasteful for a few people. But if you can park the distaste, um, both moral, ethical, and financial, this could be a really good game. Of course. And it's amazing, too, that they, they play this weekend. They just played in an FA Cup semifinal. Um, so even like under normal circumstances, they're familiar with one another, but three games in such a short period of time. I mean, they'll be like hyper familiar. I know, I know city weren't at it. They really weren't at it in the cup semifinal, but I'm telling you, Timo on the left-hand side, Timo Werner and balls being knocked into the channels. I know it sounds so basic. Anyone who watched that semifinal, particularly, um, Particularly, I know Zach Steffen's positioning in that game didn't help, uh, certainly on the on the Ziyech goal. But Andrew, the problems Chelsea gave Man City. Uh, this is a team well equipped to to go toe to toe, much better equipped to go toe to toe than uh, it appears PSG were. Last bit before we get to Liam Toomey of the Athletic, who's going to be joining us uh, momentarily to talk a little bit more about Chelsea reaching the Champions League final. Um, we we should mention Christian Pulisic, JJ. He was not in the starting eleven. Um, I'll be honest. I was stunned by that. Mm. Uh, I thought surely with him not starting over the weekend, that was a, a sign that he would certainly be a, a focal point in this one. I think he thought the same. He was, he his, was a focal point. 
sort of, but I, I mean, for 90 minutes, um, not 20. Uh, yeah, and, and he felt similarly when, when I saw his post-match interview, you know, he was, he clearly wanted to be starting. That was evident. And I just kept thinking about the story that we mentioned a couple weeks ago about Clint Dempsey, when he found out he wasn't going to be starting in the, uh, the Europa league yeah. semifinal and how he put his fist through a glass window and, sh- and like he had like tendons coming out of his hand yeah, like i was thinking to- like I, I bet i bet christian was of that mindset but i don't know if he's got quite the temper to go through with it but he looked like he was he was probably red hot yeah and he said he uh he uh all put it in he put it in god's hands so clint dempsey put your hand through the window christian pulisic reach out for god's hand there we go that's Different the difference approach. in approach yeah. yeah. Well, we'll, we'll by the way, they work great for both of them. They both came on and, and played really, really well. So, you know, whatever works. One of them is less likely to lead to arthritis down the line. Good point. Good point. Um, let's see. Should we get to uh, to Liam? He's standing yeah, by. I'll, say, I'll save my Pulisic comments for Liam. Okay. Um, well, he joins us now. We uh, We spoke to him earlier in the season when things were not looking so good for Chelsea. Liam Toomey, who covers them for The Athletic, he is back on the program with us again right now. Liam, what's up, man? How are you? I'm good. I'm good. It's looking like another, um, just another quiet end to a season for Chelsea. Incredible. Incredible. So it's funny because we last spoke to you shortly before Frank Lampard was fired. You had reported that the club was considering its options for life after Frank. So that's where we were then. Chelsea were in a, a bad place. And now here we are. They're in a Champions League final, an FA Cup final. I guess my, my biggest question is what exactly did Tuchel change, be it tactically, emotionally? What was it within the club that he did to help turn this around? Yeah, I mean, Chelsea reaching this Champions League final is an incredible story, and not not because it's an underdog story. You know, Chelsea (laughs) aren't aren't the Cinderella's of the Champions League. They never could be. but, um, But just the speed of this turnaround based on where they were at the end of January when... Chelsea decided to pull the plug on on Frank Lampard's tenure. Um, Tuchel has has made changes in a number of areas. I mean, the the clearest to see is the tactical impact that he's had, um, the shifting to this three four two one system. Sometimes it's a three four one two. You know, the the attacking line is very fluid. Um, has just redistributed the balance of this team. Um, and it's managed to turn what were some of the biggest problems and most persistent problems of the Lampard era, namely that the defensive structure um, would disintegrate in key moments. The press wasn't coordinated. Chelsea were too generally too um, easy to counterattack. All of those are now pre- like pretty much the biggest strengths of this team. It's remarkable. Um, and the fact that Tuchel has managed to do that with minimal training time parachuted into a really frantic fixture schedule across all competitions, um, while not really sacrificing any one of them, uh, is, is really a remarkable achievement. And then you've got the, you know, the kind of atmospheric change. Um, things were pretty bad in the dressing room at the end of Lampard's time. Well, how dare you say that, Liam? How dare you say that? And, and well, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, he, as often happens um, when a coach, you know, is is in his final weeks, there were a lot of players in the dressing room that, you know, that didn't have much of a relationship 
left to speak of with the coach. Mm. Um, and Tuchel has managed to bring what was, I wouldn't say a disparate dressing room, but like a, you know, a, a dressing room that could be, could in theory be prone to splitting into factions because you've got the Sari Conte era players, you've got the academy players that Lampard brought through and established, and then you've got the big name signings from last summer. Um, you know, there, there are plenty of possibilities for factions to emerge, but Tuchel has managed the squad really skillfully for the most part, with a couple of exceptions. Uh, I think bringing in p- people like Marcus Alonso and Antonio Rudiger when he first came in really sent a message to everyone that this is a clean slate. Everyone has a clear chance now. He's restored, um, I think, the players that have the strongest dressing room personalities. I mentioned Rudiger, obviously, Azpilicueta, Jorginho. Um, into positions of leadership in this team. And it's given Chelsea more personality on the pitch. That's something that Conte, Sarri, Lampard all talked about as a problem with this Chelsea squad. It hasn't been for Tuchel, which is another incredible thing. Um, so it, I think those are the main things he's changed and it, and it all adds up to a remarkable transformation. Uh, Liam, on that remarkable transformation... And I don't want to keep harping back to the Frank era, but you, you, know, you have to compare between what, what was then and, and what is now. Um, and Golo Kante was regularly talked about, about being in decline. And look, as all players get older, they, they go into some form of, of decline, whether they like it or not. But his form, particularly in the last little while, how crucial has that been to, to what we're seeing now with Chelsea? Yeah, it's, it's been integral. Um, I mean, I, first thing to say is I think Lampard was unlucky with Kante when he had him. Um, he he had to deal with the consequences of Kante playing through an injury in the 2019 Europa League final. And Kante was basically never right <laughs> during oh. Lampard's tenure. He, he had one injury after another, was never fit for very long. When he was, he was important to Lampard's team, but Lampard couldn't really count on him as, as often as I'm sure he would have liked. Mm. Um, Tuchel has been more fortunate in that regard. Um, and not only is, is Kante available, but he looks very much back to his best. And I think part of that also is something that you have to credit Tuchel for because he has restored with this double six in the, you know, the, the three, four, two, one system, he's restored Kante to his best role, which is as a roaming destroyer um, slash, slash transition ball carrier right. in a two man midfield. That's, that's what he was doing for Leicester when they had that, fairy tale run to the Premier League title. It's what he was doing under Antonio Conte when Chelsea won the league. It's what he does best, what he does better than any other midfielder in the world. And um and you know he he was phenomenal in both games against Real Madrid. I think that probably the key difference maker in in both matches. Liam, I wanted to go a little bit deeper on something that you referenced before. You talked about how with Chelsea you can't quite call them an underdog story. But by the same token, this does feel unlikely, given where we were with this team, given the narrative on, on their big signings, Havertz and Werner. I mean, what is the feeling from, from those like yourself who cover the team, from, from the supporters of this team? Uh, where does this rate on like the unlikely run scale? Yeah, I mean, it, feel, it, it felt hugely unlikely in, in January when you were looking at what Chelsea were doing on the pitch and the fact that they had been unlucky enough to, to draw pretty much the, the worst team they could have possibly drawn in the round of 16, having been top seeds, drawing Atletico Madrid, you know, super experienced in this competition, horrible to play in a knockout format and top of the league at the time, 
in Spain um, to control that tie the way they did, uh, I think really sent a message to the rest of Europe that that Chelsea were a threat in this competition under Tuchel and, and they've delivered on that since. Um, in terms of the likelihood, I guess you have to factor in that this is Chelsea, isn't it? They've now made it to three Champions League finals having changed manager mid-season. This is, this is something that no other club can do. Um, but it seems to be something that Chelsea can do, this kind of success through shock therapy. Um, it, it's really crazy. Uh, and it, it's, I've always described Chelsea, you know, having covered the club as the most successful basket case in European football. And I think that continues to be the case. Um, it, it is remarkable how they keep leading you as a journalist or as a fan uh, to finals year after year, this, almost in spite of themselves at times. And I think it's also unlikely because you look at this group, while there is a lot of money and a lot of talent in this squad, um, a lot of the players that, that Chelsea are building around, you would say haven't reached their primes yet. And so um, you, you look at this probably for this particular Chelsea team and say that for a lot of these guys, it's, a, it's ahead of schedule um, reaching a Champions League final. And, uh, and so, I mean, they'll go into it against Manchester City as underdogs, but as very, very live underdogs. I think actually um, the, the gap is not as big as it was in 2012, when I think Bayern Munich were much, much better than the Chelsea team that ended up beating them on penalties. Mm. Uh, and anything can happen in a final. So that they are there. They have, they have, the, they've achieved the main thing, which is getting there. And now they just have to execute over 90 minutes. Liam, the sound you hear in the background is the relentless march of Christian Pulisic's name towards this conversation. But before, before we get there, and we will get there. We, we are contractually obliged. Um, does it concern you a little bit? You see these really good transitions, often with Kante driving forward, laying the ball off, and nice interplay around the box for Timo Werner or indeed Kai Havertz, occasionally Mason Mount to uh, either hit the goalkeeper, hit the seats behind, or hit it wide. Um, because they seem to be able to do that in devastating fashion, and uh, the end product's not there. How much of a concern is that for you? Oh, it's a, it's a huge concern. And if, if they don't end up winning the Champions League, I think this will be the reason why. Um, I, I thought going into the tie against Real Madrid that Chelsea were the better football team. They were the, they were the better collective unit. They were the better coached team. Um, but I thought, and this was to some degree borne out in the first leg, um, that if they didn't take their chances and let Real Madrid hang around, that they could be incredibly vulnerable to um, to getting sucker punched. And that will be the case against Manchester City, who are, you would argue are probably a, a slightly more evolved version of the team Chelsea are, are building towards being. Um, so, yeah, th this has been a persistent problem for Chelsea in the final third. They are, they are simultaneously very impressive and very frustrating mm. to watch under Tuchel because they create these opportunities, these turnovers, these transitions so often in games because they're so well drilled about where to press and, and, and they have, you know, a, a phenomenally gifted ball winner in Kante um, who can help create these opportunities. But then the decision-making is often wrong. Sometimes they don't even get to a shot because yeah. that someone picks the wrong pass or they don't put the right weight on the pass and drive someone wide. That happens so many times. And then, of course, even when they do 
execute right up to the finish as they did often against Real Madrid, the, the, the final touch isn't there. And it's easy to point at Timo Werner because of the season he's had and he's had some really bad misses. Um, but Kai Havertz was even more culpable um, against Madrid. Mason Mount admitted afterwards he, he, he missed a, a glorious opportunity that he'd helped create for himself with a wonderful run about 20 minutes before he eventually scored. Um, and I think that this is something that Chelsea are just going to have to live with in the short term um, because they are building around younger players who are maybe not going to be quite as efficient and not going to be quite as um, flawless in their decision-making the final third. And that you, you just have to kind of live or possibly die at this stage of the Champions League with it. Liam Toomey of The Athletic covers Chelsea, joining us here on Caught Offside. Uh, Liam, as the American on this podcast, I will take JJ's bait and I will ask the Christian Pulisic question. When, his, when the Chelsea starting 11s are released and his name is not in it, there is a collective earthquake that kind of rumbles across all 50 states in this country. I have never seen this country so relentlessly obsessed with one player. I mean, there's certainly been beloved Americans in the past, Dempsey and Tim Howard, and, and we could go on, but not like this. So I'm wondering when his name is not in a starting 11 for Chelsea in a match where you might think it would be based on some recent performances, does it register among Chelsea supporters and media in any way, shape or form in a similar way as to how it does with American fans? Oh, well, I mean, I, I feel it on Twitter. Uh, you know, when, I, when I'm commenting on the team, I mean, I used to work for ESPN. I work for The Athletic now, so I've got quite a lot of American followers and uh, slash subscribers. And yeah, you definitely feel it. As soon as that, that team news dropped, pretty much every comment underneath uh, my post on it was, where's Pulisic? Why is, why is he not starting? This is a crazy decision. Um, some variation on that. And I yeah, I think it was really harsh on him. Um, based on the way he played in Madrid, the goal he scored, based on the fact that he's probably been Chelsea's most consistently dangerous attacker in recent weeks. I think he's shown real signs of getting back to the form he showed in those two spectacular stretches last season when he really established himself, I think, in many people's minds as a potential Premier League superstar and someone that you know Chelsea should be looking to build around. Um, He's he, you know, he he has had injury problems that have affected his ability to um, convince Tuchel that he should start every week. It, it has disrupted his rhythm at key moments. Right, and, and I know he's been frustrated about that, but he is fully fit and playing well now. And and it's just Tuchel's decision. And I think you know, I saw Pulisic's interview after the game, and he didn't attempt to hide his disappointment that he that he hadn't started such a big game, and that's totally fair. Um, the, the problem he's got is that as long as Tuchel is getting these results and getting these collective performances out of the team on in the biggest moments, he is bulletproof. Um, and, and, you know, American, American fans and American Chelsea fans can grumble about it um, if Pulisic isn't playing. But if Tuchel is winning and eventually winning trophies for Chelsea, um, there won't be much... In, by way of recrimination from anyone at the club. You know, his job is just to win regardless of the players he uses. Um, but I do think, you know, having said all of that, Chelsea's position is that Pulisic is a, is a key part of their long-term planning. I'm sure he's not overjoyed at the current situation, but 
I, I really can't see him leaving Chelsea this summer um, in large part, well, in no small part, because I don't see where the bid of the size it would take for Chelsea to even think about it is coming from in this depressed European market. Um, and I think Tuchel likes him. He just doesn't maybe necessarily like him to like him enough to start him as often as Pulisic would like. Liam, I, I always seem to end up asking you a question that assumes you're on the staff at Chelsea or you you, you like literally sneak in with a, with a cap and a moustache. But um, just just looking at the league starts or, or his league minutes. So I suppose it's important to, important to factor in that it's only in March where he had that calf injury or he was struggling with that calf injury. So if you just look at the last few league games, he, he went the full 90 against Crystal Palace. He went the full 90 against Brighton. 75 minutes then against West Ham. He's benched. Uh, for the game against Fulham, but also in between, he had the he had what sixty eight minutes or an hour against Real Madrid in the first leg, scoring the goal. Like, I mean, to me, this this seems to be that there's a, a minute management, a specific minute minute management going on here to make sure that he is that he is fit for the things he needs to be. And like coming off the bench last night and sealing the game in the way he did, his calmness and composure. Like to me, these are good things. And um, yeah, I just wonder, do you think that Chelsea are actually targeting him and making sure that he doesn't doesn't overdo it from a load management stand? Well, I think we haven't heard Tuchel talk about this explicitly, but he has referred with other players to the red zone and okay. you know, minute, minutes management in, in the last few months. So it is clearly something that he factors into his rotation and to his selection decisions with you know Chelsea are playing every three days and Tuchel needs to win all of these games so um, he need he has a duty to try and preserve all of his forwards and try and keep them in rhythm but also keep them fit um, it, it would be only natural given Pulisic's history of muscle injuries his seeming susceptibility to muscle muscle injuries if if his minutes low creeps too high um, for Chelsea to be a bit more cautious with him than they would be with some other players. And I don't think that inherently is a bad thing. I also think more broadly, um, it has been a theme of this season that every couple of weeks we have the same sort of soul searching, where do they go from here conversation about a different Chelsea attacker, depending right, on right. who is out of favour at any given point, because there are just fundamentally five or six players for those positions who would all expect to start every game for most clubs. And that's just the nature of having a squad as deep as Chelsea's is, that um, there is always going to be this sort of drama. And right now it's Tammy Abraham and Callum Hudson-Odoi and, um, you know, Christian Pulisic against Real Madrid, who, who are feeling the rough edge of it. In a week or two, it might be Hakim Ziyech and, you know, so, someone else. Um, it's... Uh, the only one who's immune to it, I think, is seems to be Mason Mount, who uh, makes himself absolutely indispensable to every coach he he, he encounters. Uh, but uh, aside from that, I think, yeah, Pulisic is just going to have to live with it until the end of the season. And I, I think he will get plenty of minutes. And as evidence that against Real Madrid, I think Tuchel um, will give him plenty of opportunities to impact these games, even if it's not always from the start. Uh, Liam, last one from me, looking ahead to the final now. Obviously, these two, Chelsea and Manchester City, are very familiar with one another. They're going to play this weekend. Chelsea just beat City in an FA Cup semifinal. I'm wondering, will they take confidence into the Champions League semifinal from having done that at Wembley, or is it just kind of 
you know, this is a new game. What happened before doesn't matter. I think both. I think they, they, they'll definitely take confidence from it because even though it wasn't quite City's strongest team, uh, they had Zach Steffen in goal. I don't think um, De Bruyne started the game. Um, Gundogan didn't start the game, I think. Or maybe De Bruyne did, but Gundogan and Foden didn't. Um, so it will be, you know, they, they will get City's full armoury uh, in the Champions League final. But the way that Chelsea control, controlled them tactically limited their attacking threat for most of the game and picked them off, scoring very much a system goal that was worked on in training by Tuchel, um, should give them a lot of confidence because it's a validation of the work they're putting in to these games. Um, and anytime you beat arguably, well, probably definitely the best team in Europe right now, you should take confidence from it. But it will be a very different game and not just because of personnel, because you have two of the smartest tactical minds in European football um, in either dugout. And, uh, and we know that Guardiola has had a, you know, a tendency to overthink some of these games in the past and maybe out chess move himself at times. But he and Tuchel know each other so well and they have so many different um, options in, in terms of play personnel, but also options in terms of their tactical knowledge. I think it'll be really intriguing. And the fact that they play each other in the Premier League before that game adds a further layer because this Premier League game is fascinating now. What do they do? You know, they both kind of, they both actually need to win it, but they don't yeah. really want to show too much of their hand in terms of what they might be planning for the Champions League final. So I think it's it's really interesting. And it might not be a super high scoring Champions League final, but I think it will be a game played at a really high intensity and a really high tactical level. Liam, uh, last one. Uh, have the fans that saved football um, on the King's Road, uh, are they in as revolutionary a form as their Northern brethren are, or are they just happy now that they've done their bit? Well, I don't think they're, they're, they're not going to be taken to the streets calling for Roman Abramovich to sell the club. No. Um, you know, every, I think every club is its own, every Super League club is its own dynamic at this point. And Abramovich has always had a lot more goodwill with Chelsea supporters, understandably so, given all the success that he's bankrolled since 2003. Um, so he had more goodwill to lose. Um, and Chelsea have also indicated in the last couple of days that you know they are willing to take a, a slightly more conciliatory tone than maybe you know Liverpool or um, United or Arsenal, the American-owned clubs. In that they, the Chelsea Supporters Trust issued a statement basically demanding uh, fan representation on key football decisions. Uh, particularly relating to the the competitions that Chelsea will play in in the future. Um, and Chelsea announced in the last couple of days that they want three fan representatives to be present at board meetings, three elected fan representatives. And that statement was um, also very clear about what the limitations of that involvement <laughs> yes. would be. So it's it's also, you know, very, very obvious from the outset that Chelsea... Um, want to retain control over this process, and you know they are a they are fundamentally a private company owned by a billionaire with and run on a daily basis by his band of advisors. That will not change, 
But the fact that they are even doing this, which is a, a hell of a lot more than the other English uh, Super League clubs have so far done, even if it is, you know, even if you are inclined to view it as only a token gesture, it is at least a gesture um, that that suggests they they are concerned about what the fans think on some level and are prepared to listen to them at some level, even if they're not necessarily going to go go along with what they want. How can we believe anything from this guy unless we see him on a sofa with a potted plant to his left, being very <laughs> sorry about something that he's not that sorry about? That's how I see it anyway. Yeah, exactly. Fair enough. Well, good stuff, Liam. We appreciate your time. I'm sure as we close in on the final, uh, maybe we'll be in touch once again. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, good to talk to you again, guys. Thanks. Thanks to uh, Liam for joining us once again. Always enjoy catching up with him. Yeah, he really is. One thing, I, I know we, we've spent a good amount of time on Pulisic, so I don't want to go too much deeper. But You, you, said want, one, you want to turn this into caught off I don't, Pulisic. I don't, I don't. But there was just one thing that you said that, that struck me when yes. you mentioned... Um, you know, that they need to be careful managing his minutes because mm-hmm. they need to save him, you know, for, for when it, for the things that matter. And <laughs> it's one, one second leg of a champions league semifinal. This is what you're saving him for. Yeah, you're managing you're not... his minutes to save him for this. Yeah. Like, but if you're not, not, then what? Then but what again, if not this? But I understand what you're saying, but you've got to look at the knowledge and the knowledge Tuchel has. He's not putting out He's not, do you know what? He's not putting out, um, let me think. I'm trying to think of a really bad Chelsea signing, like a terrible Chelsea player. No, uh, I hear you. I get He's that. not I... putting in some absolute muck onto the field. He's putting in team with a system. And by the way, like there would have been no need for Pulisic if Werner at all had done what they were supposed to do. That game, the, it should have been 3-0, comfortably 3-0. And he was brought in and he did what he needed to do. Now, this is what Liam is saying. This is what I'm saying. When the manager is getting these calls right, when the team is doing what they're doing, he is bulletproof. And there's a lot of sucking up that needs to be done here. You know, we, we love Christian Pulisic. And my position on this is, if, I, if Pulisic is fit, I start him in every single game. But right. I don't have his load minutes. I don't have the data. I don't have the little blood test where they check how his, um, his uh, what is it, this, the oxygen levels, uh, how much... Uh, Oxygen is getting to the muscles. How, you know, what's his fatigue levels? I don't have the lactic acid, sorry, excuse me, the lactic acid levels. I don't don't have any of this information. If he wasn't fit, then Christian Pulisic would not have, I think, been quite so disappointed afterwards. It's not about. I I think he would have understood. Remember, he pulled himself out of a game once at halftime. Like he understands his fitness is a big deal. We're only, what are we, only six or eight weeks since he did that? You know, so I, so clearly they've looked at it and they said, we need him down the street stretch. We need to look after it. And it's not about being injured in that moment. It's about making sure you manage the minutes to make sure you, you, to ensure that injury can't happen. It's, it's, it's prevention as much as anything. Um, and I get, I get fans being upset. I play Liam every- himself said it was harsh. He's been the way he's the the level of play that he's been up to the last few weeks, several weeks, uh, not uh, playing over the weekend. I mean, I think how he performed in the first leg, it was uh, this was a natural fit. I thought I want to push back. I think part of my pushback on 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 the 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 outrage whenever he doesn't start is because I'm kind of bored of this story now. All right. That's fair. You know, I honestly I am kind of bored of it. And and, you know, 
does every Chelsea match have to go down the avenue, the dead end of uh, White and Pulisic, Pulisic start? Well, here's the only reason that it does. A, I, I'm thinking of our Norwegian listeners here. They want to talk about Chelsea legend Tor Andre Flo. Here's the only reason that it does, JJ, is because he keeps, by the fact, because he comes in and like instantly ha- creates more chances. I think he had more created chances than anyone in the match. Uh, sets up a Mason Mount goal that seals it. Like he keeps validating our outrage by coming in and immediately performing to this level where we're thinking, well, why is he not playing more? Like if Andrew. he came in and didn't really do much, we, this wouldn't be as much of a conversation. Andrew, I think he's I think he's Chelsea's most complete attacking player. I think he's their most creative. I think he's their most dangerous. And I think he opens up opportunities for everybody else. I believe that. And I would start him every game. But they don't want to do it for some reason that we teased right. out in the interview already. Yeah. Now, let's get on to the greatest competition in sports. The CONCACAF Champions League, JJ. These aren't the best teams. Well, they kind of are. If I had told you three years ago, the union would beat Atlanta so easily. Jim Curtin. I don't care for that song. I find it patronizing, condescending. By the way, you say these aren't the best teams. I mean, I I think we've been left with four. I mean, I know the union are off to a slow start domestically in MLS, but, you know, defending supporter shield winners. Did great in the MLS's back cup, you know, underperformed in the postseason last year. But like, and then three really, really good Mexican teams. Um, this is no, I'm, I'm, I'm being facetious. This, this is the good, these are the you're good, hurtful teams. is what you're being. Uh, no, I, 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 I'm telling you, when, when, when you saw Jim Curtin floundering and questions being asked about his job, what three years ago? Look where they uh, are yeah. now, clipping, like cruising. <laughs> He is the, a, he's the toast of the league right now, managerially. Oh, come on. And he's looking, he's making uh, the Einza, he's delaying the Einzolution, the revolution. Well, yeah. I think when a manager has a team rolling like this, um, you know, he starts to, you know, not, to, not only do players start to feel some confidence, but I think managers do too. And I think Jim Curtin of three years ago doesn't necessarily make the sort of post-match comments that Jim Curtin did earlier this week. What did he say, tell? Well, he referred to Gabriel Heinz uh, as an a-hole, <laughs> for one. <laughs> it was pretty like when I read it, I was like, "Is this is this a real tweet or is this somebody yeah. having fun?" And, but no, he was he serious. Um, yeah, it was in reference Gabriel Heinz. You could see that they were having a really animated conversation at full time, um, and it didn't necessarily look uh, like there was animosity, but there was a lot of. Heinz uh, chatter and curtain, a little bit of eye rolling kind of behavior, but it didn't look ugly. Like they didn't have to be held back or restrained or anyway. So I wasn't quite sure. It wasn't Pep and Caleb Porter. Remember that? (laughs) Great callback. Yes. Yeah, that was something. Um, But no, Jim Curtin was annoyed after the match that Gabriel Heinz, I guess, was also annoyed. Uh, Heinz didn't like some of the what he perceived as, you know, somewhat like dirty tactics, I guess, players who were faking injury. Um, you know, Jim Curtin didn't necessarily deny those things. He kind of said like Gabriel Heinze has been in enough big matches and cup matches to understand that like sometimes those things happen. Like, and if and if it's going to bother him that much, then well, Jim Curtin I, took it from there. I liked it. I thought it was yeah. Feisty. So, oh, I'm very much here for uh, yeah. manager wars in MLS. Yeah, th- 
there'll be no there'll be no pearl clutching about incidents like this it, it, it it's fast becoming the best competition in in north america the best soccer competition it really union, is i thought the union played well um i i know it got a little bit hairy for them when that uh when the santiago sosa goal occurred just before halftime what was the second minute of first half stoppage time and the union, it, it was a little bit unfair on the union i thought they had a good first half they applied pressure there wasn't much coming back the other way i, I think andre blake didn't have to actually make a save until the 55th minute or so um, so the union might've felt a little hard done by that. And you were wondering if Atlanta United FC was going to kick on and, uh, and really start to apply the heat in the second half and maybe little bits in, in spurts, but, um, not enough. And in the end, it was the union actually and Casper Shabilko scoring again in this competition. I believe he's scored in every game so far in the CONCACAF champions league. He sealed it. And, uh, there they go. The, the lone MLS representative into the semifinals of this competition. Yeah, the um, the game I paid attention to was the Monterey Columbus game because you know from the first leg Columbus haven't performed well. There was a little bit of a uh, little bit of pep in the step, um, but this one, this game in Monterey was uh, decided. You might say real early, Andrew. We had a combination of two topics that come up: one from me and one from you. Uh, Eloy Room with some poor goalkeeping palms it right in the path of Metza for the opener. And then right on four minutes, Williams plays this unbelievable ball into the path of Jesus. And I'm convinced, just chest it down, chest it across yourself. You're in like the defender's firing off away. And he puts this meek header wide of the post. And you're like, that was the chance. That was your away goal there. And uh, the rest is, is history. Monterey, Monterey, Monterey went on 3 0, pretty comfortable. Yeah, uh, Toronto. One FC. shot, one shot on target. Sorry, Andrew. One shot on target all night for Columbus was not great either. Yeah, uh, similar story for Toronto FC as they go down uh, to Cruz Azul. Um, just yeah, a few chances here and there. Io Akinola put one wide. Um, yeah, they had a couple opportunities, but it was was not their night, and uh, no. they they bowed as well. And then the interesting one also last night, late last night, the Portland Timbers they go out as well. Um, to Club America, you there stayed some, up to watch your second team. I, I stayed up, watched it in its uh, in its entirety. There was, I mean, there were some dubious refereeing decisions. So uh, a a penalty with with Portland still firmly in this. They're down one nil, and a penalty goes against them. That was it was soft. It was soft. I didn't think it was crazy in terms of uh, how penalties go, but it was soft. And there was a little bit of a feeling of, oh man, is that how this is going to end for Portland with a, a minor case of conca Um, But then, so the penalty is converted, but then only a minor minutes, case of conca but then only minutes later, they were the beneficiaries. I thought of an unbelievable penalty call. I couldn't believe in real time. I thought, oh, maybe I mean, it was kind of on the follow through of a shot. So like after the shot was taken, was their contact, I don't know, Jay. I saw the replay over and over again. And I mean, I couldn't, like, I don't see it. Had Portland wound up winning this thing, uh, it would have been, it would have not been received well, I'm sure, in in Mexico. Right. No, Um, surely not. But, uh, and Diego Valeri, he converted the penalty and it, and it was leading to what could have been a really interesting final 30 minutes or so. But, and Portland had chances. I mean, they, they did apply pressure and, uh, they just couldn't get that final ball across the line like they it was it was pretty consistent pressure but then in the end club america got one more 
to seal it and, uh, and Portland go out. That was frustrating for them because they were in it. And I'm sure that there will be chances they look back on and think oh, if just like a couple things had gone differently. Um, but there were some, there were some other bad calls and it was funny near the end of the game. Cause they were, they were talking about some of the bad calls that went against Portland and Stu Holden kind of then like had this moment of clarity where he reminded everyone. He's like, well, Portland did get that penalty decision. So it, it kind of nullifies some of the other bad decisions that may have gone against them. But yes, in the end, uh, the union, the lone MLS representative into the uh, the semifinals, which, by the way, don't occur now until um, I believe August is the first leg of the semifinal. And the, is... and then a month later is the second <laughs> leg. <laughs> just, what are they doing? Why can't things just sometimes be normal here? Like, I'm sure I, I haven't read too deeply. I'm sure there's a logical reason as to why. Paragraph. Rule 16, paragraph 8 of the Scotiabank CONCACAF Champions League says things shall not be normal. Oh, that's that's an interest. It's surprising they bury that rule so deeply. It feels like that would be a prominent one. Well, it's prominent every time you watch the competition. I, I mean, the semifinal, like to, to now not have this for months <laughs> and months. It's very strange. It literally in a different, in, a, in, your, in the European calendar sense, a different season. And in some senses in, oh, in, in Central and North. Think of all that will have changed. At that point, the Gold Cup will have been played. The European Championships will have been played. Like multiple um, huge trophies will have been handed out between now and when the quarterfinals and semifinals of this competition are going to be played. Interesting. But I'm looking forward to it. I have several months to prepare, so I'm, uh, I'm excited. Uh, and JJ, before we get out here... We've got, I mentioned this earlier. It's it's the biggest match of the season in La Liga. It's this Saturday, 10:15 a.m. Barcelona hosting Atletico Madrid. Uh, this is this is the big one. We've been talking about this one for a few weeks, and it is now upon us. And uh, Graham Hunter at ESPN FC. Oh, such a good article. He has I was about a to quote from it. How dare you? I have a, yeah, I have something here also from it. He asked the question, which I I hadn't really considered. Maybe foolishly on my part, I hadn't really considered this question until I saw him write a, a, an article about it. And he basically wonders, like, is this kind of a save your job match for these two managers, Ronald Koeman mm. and Diego Simeone? And at first I thought, that's, that's not fair. Like, that feels ridiculous to me. But I, then I, I, you know, I read his article. I thought more about it. And you know, to, to know Barcelona, uh, I guess, is to know that you know, this job is not necessarily safe. And with Diego Simeone, you know, I, I don't, I don't believe his job is or should be in any jeopardy, oh, but, but if you suffer this kind of collapse, if they go on and lose the league from the position that they were in, um, I mean, I guess that's it's my view. not, I guess it's not crazy. That's, that's my view to have the, the, the big two in, Spain, in Spanish football weakened so significantly to have the lead that they had. And I know there was games in hand that were a factor and then to play so poorly for the last two months to crash out of Europe as well. Not good. Not good at all. And Graham's paragraph is, is very succinct here and it kind of sums it up. Yet the harsh fact is that Kuman is fighting to ensure he can see out the remaining 12 months of his Barcelona contract. And as far as Simeone goes, nobody who watched the apathetic, fear-ridden apology of performance, which his team patently on the Argentinians' orders turned in to hang on to their 1-0 lead at Elche last weekend, can properly argue that Simeone even vaguely resembles the man who took over the club in 2011 or, <coughs> excuse me, or won the title in 2014. Never mind Atleti's league position, 
he's in decline. And he's in decline. He's in decline on 47 million euros a year. A club that was going to join the European Super League um, will now have to look at this and think, is this money well spent anymore? Are, we, are, are, are the wheels spinning in motion? If they don't win this league, uh, from the position they've been in. And it's not like they haven't spent, Andrew. It's not like they haven't accrued some good players in the right. squad. And it's, I, it's that they've you, spent, like Zhao Felix, what he cost and his role on this team, it's, they're not getting anywhere near uh, the, their bang for their buck on, on that signing in particular. No, and it's a systems thing. I'm t- I Go back, guys, because uh, I'm sure it's on CBS on, on YouTube. Watch Salzburg and Atleti. Watch the highlights of that game. Um you can't say Simeone's uh, system is working anymore. Um, and as good the- as it is to watch their barnstorming, defending their sweaty chested, sweaty hairlined headers away, their, you know, gaunt manliness on the field. Uh, but, you know, you got to do more with your, with your fancy players and they don't. And on the Barcelona Kuman side of it, you know, Graham says uh, in the article, I have the strongest impression that Messi respects Kuman and knows he's benefited from the Dutchman, but severely doubts whether they'll be winning the Champions League anytime soon if Kuman is in charge. If Messi is communicating that to new club president Joan Laporta, then look out Kuman. Laporta has had a handful of opportunities to 100% confirm the Dutchman for next season and has eluded doing so thus far. That's the interesting thing for me is like, you know, Laporta, if he, if he ran for this uh, the presidency of Barcelona under the, you know, sort of like the campaigning of a vote for me as a vote for Messi, as we kind of had talked about with him and his candidacy, then like, then who's running the club here? Because ultimately if sure. Okay. Even if Barcelona go on and win the title, then, then it becomes difficult um, to, to force their hand and, and fire Kuman after that sort of success. Also he, he won a Copa del Rey as well. So they'd have a, a league cup double, um, but like, if Messi goes to Laporta and says, "I like him, but nah," well, like, and they and this guy feels like he's got to do everything he can in his power to keep Messi in Barcelona colors for the remainder of Messi's career. Then, then like, that's it. You know, mm. Messi is the like the de facto general manager. So that's true. You know, so that that like that above all else, you know, because Kuman has come in and he's gotten the most out of guys that we were starting to write off. Uh, you know, Usman Dembele has has come on and been much better. You know, he's Kuman has gone to Pedri, and now he looks like they, you know, they have another young star in the making. Um, even I mean, I guess even Griezmann, maybe that was always going to happen because we know how talented he is. But I mean, Barcelona's rise this season has coincided with Griezmann's, and so Kuman in some ways has to be given credit for that as well. So he's done a lot of good here. But ultimately, Messi might like him. But if Messi doesn't think that they can quite reach the heights that they want to with him, his fate is is sealed. So um, interesting. But like I said, if Barcelona win this title, and this weekend will go a long way in determining that, then I don't don't think, I think like Tuchel, Koeman may become bulletproof as well. I see a Barcelona win. So do I. I see a Barcelona win. And uh, I I, I predict a... A fair amount of screaming from a certain Jordy who lives in Florida. Hmm. We know who it is. Who? Ray Hudson. Oh. <laughs> By the way, I've got some disturbing breaking news that's distracted me. Oh. Uh, Bleacher Report Football are reporting that Ed Sheeran has been revealed as the shirt sponsor of, 
of Ipswich Town, his boyhood club, from next season. What does that mean? Will they have his like his name on the shirt? He's the shirt sponsor. Yeah. How how would that work? I mean, hopefully it's not his face. That kind of. I don't think it'll be his face. Would it be? Is it like, like his record label? His signature, his record label. Yeah. So no. this this was the breaking news that like completely. I could see your eyes glaze over while I was talking. You were lost. Well, that happens world. anyway, Andrew. It just was noticeable this time. <laughs> Uh, that feels like a good point to maybe exit this podcast. What do we say? This was yeah. fun, man. Champions League final is set. I enjoyed Manchester it. And, pl- Chelsea. and please, if you're a Manchester United fan and you've had enough of the talk about Chelsea, go back to Tuesday's podcast where we do a deep dive into how Manchester United was brought down by a horse, uh, Sir Alex Ferguson, Malcolm Glazer, and the whole episode and what we're seeing right now uh, and the protests. It, uh, I don't think we've ever gone so deep in and in the club in our lives. It was pretty fascinating. It was. It really was. Well, hey, this was, uh, this was fun, man. Our thanks to Liam Toomey from The Athletic. Check him out. He's got great stuff at The Athletic on Twitter as well. And uh, great stuff from you, JJ. I hope your, uh, your nerve, your trap nerve is freed and is uh, breathing the sweet air of, of inner body freedom. Wow. It sounds like an advert. Are you seeking inner body freedom? Um, actually, I'm sitting for too long, so I have to get up now. Oh, seriously. Okay. All right. Well, hey, to you, I say. Check you later, fun boy, and your ya. nerve. Oh, take care. Later. <laughs> You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 